Percy B. Shelley, Mont Blanc, Lines Written in the Vale of Chamonix. We're going to jump ahead a bit chronologically to look at this poem by Percy Shelley, even though we are not going to get to his other works and his author's introduction until later in the course. But Mont Blanc is such a wonderful example of the concept of the sublime that we've been exploring that I couldn't resist jumping ahead to it. It's a challenging poem to understand, but using the concept of the sublime as an interpretive framework really illuminates the poem and makes it come to life. I'm not going to read through the entire poem, but I'll pick some selected passages to read and discuss. The poem dates from 1816, and the subject of the poem is a 16,000-foot-high mountain in the French Alps, the highest peak in Europe. It was a must-see for everyone's grand tour. In 1816, Percy and Mary Shelley visited Mont Blanc, and it left a very dramatic impression upon them. In their notes from the Longman Anthology of British Literature, Susan Wolfson and Peter Manning say this about the poem. It involves a dizzying play of imagery and language, wildly dilated and piled-up syntaxes, dazzling verbal transformations, and a welter of sublime negatives, unknown, infinite, unearthly, unfathomable, viewless. Amid this drama, Shelley poses questions of the mind's ability to perceive and comprehend transcendent power, and ultimately its existence. He portrays the perceiving mind with metaphors drawn from the scene before him as he stands on a bridge over the river Arva, a deep ravine, and the valley below, the mountain and glacier above. With that as an appropriate prelude, let us begin the poem. The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves, now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, now lending splendor where, from secret springs, the source of human thought its tribute brings of waters. With a sound but half its own, such as a feeble brook will oft assume, in the wild woods among the mountains lone, where waterfalls around it leap forever, where woods and winds contend, and a vast river over its rocks ceaselessly bursts and raves. That's the first section of the poem, and I want to point out a few things. Notice this metaphor of the universe of things as a kind of stream that flows through the poet's mind. And remember that we said that the use of the poet's mind as a subject is one of those characteristics of much Romantic period poetry. Here, the poet's mind is connected to this universe of things, and these rapid waves, now dark, now glittering, flow from secret springs. The reference to tribute in the line, the source of human thought its tribute brings of waters, recalls the word tributary, which is another stream that flows into the larger river. So, human thought is connected here to this vast flowing stream. The scene here is of wild woods and leaping waterfalls, where woods and winds contend and a vast river over its rocks ceaselessly bursts and raves. 
Waterfalls were favorite sublime subjects of poets during the Romantic period. And here we see a huge mountain with a roaring waterfall plunging into an abyss. It's made to order sublime. The second section reads, Thus thou, ravine of Arva, deep, dark ravine, thou many-colored, many-voiced vale, over whose pines and crags and caverns sail, fast cloud shadows and sunbeams, awful scene, where power in likeness of the Arva comes down from the ice gulfs that gird his secret throne, bursting through these dark mountains like the flame of lightning through the tempest. Thou dost lie, thy giant brood of pines, around thee clinging, children of elder time, in whose devotion the chainless winds still come and ever came to drink their odors, and their mighty swinging to hear an old and solemn harmony. Thine earthly rainbows stretched across the sweep of the ethereal waterfall, whose veil robes some unsculptured image, the strange sleep which, when the voices of the desert fail, wraps all in its own deep eternity. Thy caverns echoing to the Arva's commotion, a loud, lone sound no other sound can tame. Thou art pervaded with that ceaseless motion, thou art the path of that unresting sound, dizzy ravine. And when I gaze on thee, I seem as in a trance, sublime and strange, to muse on my own separate fantasy, my own, my human mind, which passively now renders and receives fast influencings, holding an unremitting interchange with the clear universe of things around, one legion of wild thoughts whose wandering wings now float above thy darkness, and now rest where that or thou art no unbidden guest. In the still cave of the witch poesy, Seeking among the shadows that pass by, ghosts of all things that are, some shade of thee, some phantom, some faint image, till the breast from which they fled recalls them, thou art there. End of quote. This is such an incredibly rich section of the poem, and I think it's the real heart of the poem's expression of the sublime. As I noted before, we have in the beginning of this section a deep ravine, the river, this awful scene where awful means not bad, but something that is full of awe, where power, and power is capitalized, power in likeness of the Arva comes down. These are images of nature's power, and it's something to inspire awe and perhaps fear. The icy waters flow from glaciers down the mountains and become a raging torrent, Shelley writes of a giant brood of pines as children of elder time. They are vast pine trees that have been there since a time before humanity, and the sound of their branches swaying in the wind is characterized as an old and solemn harmony. And perhaps you've seen waterfalls where the mists from the plunging waters produce a rainbow effect. The strange sleep which, when the voices of the desert fail, wraps all in its own deep eternity. The caverns echoing to the Arva's commotion, a loud, lone sound no other sound can tame. If you think back to a time when you might have experienced a waterfall of any size, you might recall this ceaseless roar and motion. That's what Shelley's talking about here. Ceaseless motion, 
unresting sound. And the lines, dizzy ravine, and when I gaze on thee, I seem as in a trance sublime and strange to muse on my own separate fantasy, my own, my human mind, which passively now renders and receives fast influencings. This is that idea that the sublime is something strange. It's not particularly human, and this is one reason why it is so awe-inspiring for us. Shelley here exhibits the romantic fascination with his own mind, a mind that is connected to this vast force. His mind is holding an unremitting interchange with the clear universe of things around. So, while he's gazing at the waterfall and imagining its source, he's thinking of his own mind as a kind of waterfall that is connected to this on some deep level. We will see a similar concept when we look at Wordsworth's poem, Tintern Abbey, which was written much before Mont Blanc. There's a kind of platonic image here when Shelley writes about the still cave of the witch poesy, seeking among the shadows that pass by, ghosts of all things that are, some shade of thee, some phantom, some faint image. This recalls Plato's allegory from chapter 7 of The Republic, Plato describes people chained in a cave with their backs to the entrance, watching shadows play upon the firelit walls of the cave, ignorant of the reality outside. They believe the shadowy world is real, but the real world is outside. Shelley was well acquainted with the Greek poets and philosophers and read Greek. Let's look at a few passages now from the next section. I looked on high. Has some unknown omnipotence unfurled the veil of life and death? Or do I lie in dream, and does the mightier world of sleep spread far around and inaccessibly its circles? For the very spirit fails, driven like a homeless cloud from steep to steep that vanishes among the viewless gales. Far, far above, piercing the infinite sky, Mont Blanc appears, still, snowy, and serene. Its subject mountains, their unearthly forms, pile around it ice and rock, broad veils between of frozen floods, unfathomable deeps, blue as the overhanging heaven that spread and wind among the accumulated steeps. Here are a series of what Susan Wolfson and Peter Manning called sublime negatives. Viewless gales, infinite sky, unfathomable deeps. Remember that the sublime is something larger than human, and so it is unfathomable for the human mind. Continuing. How hideously its shapes are heaped round, rude, bare, and high, ghastly, and scarred, and riven, is this the scene where the old earthquake demon taught her young ruin? Were these her toys? Or did a sea of fire envelop once this silent snow? None can reply. All seems eternal now. The wilderness has a mysterious tongue which teaches awful doubt, or faith so mild, so solemn, so serene, that man may be but for such faith, with nature reconciled. Thou hast a voice, great mountain, to repeal large codes of fraud and woe, not understood by all, but which the wise and great and good interpret or make felt or deeply feel. There is a kind of strangeness here in all these negatives. We can't really view this, we can't understand or fathom it, and we don't even know how this mountain came to be. Was it an earthquake demon or a sea of fire, such as a volcano? There is no answer. 
It's eternal now, and the snow is silent. For Shelley, more so than Wordsworth, as we will see, the universe, nature, is, while not quite hostile to humanity, at best indifferent. The vastness of this scene for Shelley is so far beyond human comprehension that humankind is more or less beneath its notice, perhaps as a bug might be to us. There is an inaccessibility here. In part four, Shelley says, The works and ways of man, their death and birth, and that of him and all that that his may be, all things that move and breathe with toil and sound are born and die, revolve, subside, and swell. Power dwells apart in its tranquility, remote, serene, and inaccessible, and this, the naked countenance of earth, on which I gaze, even these primeval mountains teach the adverting mind. The glaciers creep like snakes that watch their prey, from their far fountains slow rolling on. There many a precipice, frost and the sun in scorn of mortal power, have piled dome, pyramid, and pinnacle, a city of death, distinct with many a tower and wall impregnable of beaming ice. Yet not a city, but a flood of ruin is there, that from the boundaries of the sky rolls its perpetual stream. Here, Shelley is describing a power that is remote and serene, so far apart from the works and ways of man, their death and birth. Later in that section, he says, The race of man flies far in dread, his work and dwelling vanish like smoke before the tempest stream, and their place is not known. In other words, we are so little to this vast power that we are not even remembered when we are gone. Continuing, Below, vast caves shine in the rushing torrent's restless gleam, which from these secret chasms in tumult welling meet in the vale and one majestic river, the breath and blood of distant lands forever rolls its loud waters to the ocean waves, breathes its swift vapors to the circling air. And in part five, Mont Blanc yet gleams on high, the power is there, the still and solemn power. Shelley ends the poem with the following lines, which return us to that fascinating relationship between things and thought that he explored earlier. The secret strength of things which governs thought and to the infinite dome of heaven is as a law inhabits thee. And what were thou and earth and stars and sea if, to the human mind's imaginings, silence and solitude were vacancy? We think of silence and solitude as emptiness or vacancy, but for Shelley, silence and solitude are not empty. They are not lacking. They are actually filled with this power and this secret strength of things. Percy Shelley, Mont Blanc, Lines Written in the Vale of Chamonix.